You're listening to a podcast from 702. 702. The Naked Scientist. Ah, Chris. I, I can't call you the Naked Scientist. I'm going to call you Chris. Chris, I've been waiting to talk to you for years. Hi, my name is Yuveka. <laughs> Fully dressed in Hello, studio. Yuveka. Hello. <laughs> and I've been wanting to talk to you for years and years and years after hearing you on these shows. And I have my, my first question to you is, are you just like the smartest guy on the planet? Or do you Google things faster than anyone else? Or are you just the best liar and we're just naive and we believe everything you say? <laughs> Well, no, no, I'm none of those. Um, <laughs> we don't, we're, um, we're definitely not Googling stuff. I mean, yeah. occasionally, th- there's just not time right because when people phone up, we don't know who's going to phone Absolutely. in. Absolutely. And, um, and so when people ask questions, occasionally it's possible to then uh, look back later and say, well, hang on, I've had another think about this and here's some extra bits and pieces I've flushed out. Mm-hmm. And occasionally I'll take away some homework, of course, because uh, uh, there's frequently going to be things people come up with that we're not going to know. Um, but on the whole, it's all about kind of just making science fun and interesting, isn't it? Yeah, and, absolutely. And I'm I'm blessed with being the world's biggest geek, and <laughs> you, know, you bring that to the to the table, and um, we're we're home and dry. Well, there's a title you won, the world's biggest geek. Wonderful. Well, I have my first question for you, and I'm sitting after being sick, and you can hear I'm I'm I'm, I'm still a bit snotty, so I'm trying to sort that out. And I've ended up, and I always get them, like the biggest cold sores you can imagine. It's like another person living on my face. That's what it is. And I've actually named him. His name is Herp because it's a form of herpes, right? So I call him Herp um, and he's Herp Rangapa. And it's on the same spot, on my lip all the time. And I even find now that you know, it actually goes, and it's quite disgusting, goes into my nose at some point as well. And I want to know from you, what is it with cold sores? What, what causes them? And why do they appear in the same place every time you're either stressed or you're sick or run down? Well, the cause is an easy one to answer. This hmm. is my favorite virus because I actually did oh. my PhD on ah, this, okay. which is herpes simplex virus type 1. And this is a member of the herpes virus family. And the herpes viruses are all united by a common feature, which is what's called latency. Mm -hmm. They evolved at a time when there were very few people, animals, whatever else on earth to infect. And it wasn't a guarantee that you were going to bump into another susceptible person anytime soon. Mm. So you couldn't have viruses around like flu and measles that are a constant chain of transmission or they die out because you didn't know when you were going to meet someone you could pass it on to. Mm. So these viruses evolved to get into your body, and then in the same way as you've heard with the James Bond film, Diamonds Are Forever, well, yeah. herpes is for life. <laughs> so <laughs> once you get a herpes virus, whether it's herpes simplex that causes cold sores, the herpes simplex type 2 that causes nastiness in the below the belt area, yeah. and let's leave it at that. Okay, so uh, the one on the lip has nothing to do. Parents, yeah, the one uh, on the lip has nothing uh, to do with the one below the belt. Let's just make that clear, right? Well, in your case, we don't know. We haven't tested <laughs> you, do we? But um, we, there's chicken pox, which does the same thing. Yes. That's a member of the family. And then there are other viruses that produce different symptoms, but they're all members of the same family and work the same way. Uh. Epstein-Barr virus that causes glandular fever and its relative cytomegalovirus. They're both herpes viruses as well. So there are loads of them. And they all have this feature that they get into your body and they pick on a certain tissue and they survive forever for the rest of your life in that tissue. And in the case of herpes simplex type 1, it's your nervous system. And so what they're doing is periodically, in response to ill-defined stimuli, they reactivate. And the the little piece of DNA corresponding to the virus in the nerve that supplies, in your case, part of your lip, part of your nose, Mm. it activates the virus DNA. And that's the recipe for new viruses, which Mm. then get made in the cell 
exported all the way to the skin surface where they bud off from the nerve, infect the overlying skin, and they produce a nice little virus factory there out on the skin surface. Reason for doing that, mm. that's fully infectious. Anyone who then snogs you can pick up herpes simplex mm. type 1 and they've got it. And in oh, fact, dear. there was a lovely paper out last week that showed that um, this comes from probably about 5,000 years ago oh. because researchers at the University of Cambridge, my own institution, were able to work out how fast herpes viruses evolve and change mm. so they could work out how quick the genetic clock of herpes is ticking and then when there must have been this big big explosion wow. in the carriage of herpes because one person in every two or three has got it. Yeah, yeah. And turns out it was probably about 5,000 years ago. So Bronze Age peoples um, were encouraging everyone to snog all over each other by the look of it. Romantic Wonderful. kissing probably evolved <laughs> wow. with the Bronze Age about oh 5,000 years ago. Okay, well, I've had this since I was a kid, so I haven't been up to no good. But nothing to do with vaccinations. I heard that once, that sometimes, you know, it, it, it's the vaccines that you get, childhood vaccines that might trigger these. Well, this stimulus can vary from person to person. It can be getting run down and low. It can be menstruation. It can be getting sunburned. So people often go off on a hot holiday and the UV in the sunlight, mm. especially on lips because they're a little bit more vulnerable, you get sunburn there and the injury to the tissue fools the virus into thinking, whoa, this body I'm in is compromised. I'd better evacuate the premises and get on to a new person quickly mm. in order to spread because this person might be about to pop their cork and die. Well. And, and so the virus then causes a, a, a lesion. And uh, it's so stimulus, the stimulus can include damage to the skin. So a whole range of different reasons why it will be disclosed. And in some people, it's just that the immunity that's holding it in check drops off a bit. It enables the virus to reactivate. You get a cold sore. This stimulates your immune system very powerfully, which reigns it in, holds it in check for a while, and then off it goes again. It yeah. varies from person to person. Okay, so quite a mean little thing, this herb. All right, enough about me and herb, Rangapa. We'll move on now, and let's hear from a Charles in Polsoff, who's got some questions about nerves in your arms. Hi there, Charles. Hi, Charles. Can you hear me? Hello? Yes, I can, yes. Your question. Yeah, my question is, um, you know, continuing it to, for example, your shoulders is filled with nerves, mm. why is it if you have an injection, well, it's relatively painless, but if you have to cut the same spot with a sharp knife, it's extremely painful. Yet the needle mm. and the knife are still going into the flesh filled with nerves. Ooh, all right. Uh, okay, there's, there's a couple of things to think about. When you cut with an extremely sharp instrument, then actually it's possible to make quite a big cut without feeling very much because you don't necessarily run into that many nerves because the part of the body that we give needles and injections into usually the density of innovation in other words how many nerve endings are in that those bits of skin are not very high if you did the same injection or cut to the end of your finger it would feel very very different than mm. if you do it to your backside or to the mm. upper arm because the body matches the density of the nerve supply to an area to how much you use that area to do fine things with. So obviously it's important to have high density innovation in your fingertips because you want to reach into your mm. pocket, feel a bunch of coins or keys in there, explore with your fingertip to find the right coin or the right key and then pull out your hand from your pocket clutching said object. Okay. You don't do that with your shoulder or your backside. Mm. So as a result you don't have the same density of innovation on those bits of your body. So you you don't necessarily feel the same all over your body is point one. Point two, um, needles are very tiny and unless they have to be big, they are really, really small 
And as a result, as they go into a piece of tissue, they will traumatize very few nerve endings, especially in parts of the body that are relatively poorly innervated. And same with the scalpel. If you cut through a patch of skin in a straight line, and, and you, you can do this being in a relatively non-traumatic way, mm. you can minimize the amount of damage. You tend to also notice it hurts more when you watch it, if you're prone to that yeah. kind of thing, if you watch and yeah. see it. And also, in the aftermath of doing the injection or doing the cutting, there will be inflammation because when you damage a patch of skin or tissue, you release various factors that cause inflammation, which is part of the repair process. And the inflammation winds up local nerves as well. And so often people will say they only noticed it really hurting afterwards, not at the time, yeah. because it's the inflammation yes. that then starts yes. to hit nerves that didn't get hit when you actually either did the cutting or put the needle in. And that's common, Chris, with people who sometimes been like shot or stabbed and didn't actually have an right. aunt who was stabbed on a train and didn't even know till minutes later that that had happened. Um, yeah. yeah, yeah, that's right. Okay. And the, the two guys who invented something called the gate theory of pain, it was Melzack and Wall were the two scientists in, in London. And they made the point that you you have a really profound contribution of psychology to your experience of pain and perception mm. of pain. And, you know, in one of their papers, they say in, I think they quoted, there was in the Napoleonic Wars, when there was somebody standing on one of the ships and, you know, two fingers had been carried away by a cannonball, oh. uh, ripping across the ship's deck, and the person didn't notice until the battle was over. Oh, my goodness. And now mm. now that really hurts. Now I've noticed. Wow. It. Okay, now that you but know. It's, yes. it's all down to, you know, what you what you're seeing aware of and when you're really stressed or really fired up about something you can surmount the pain pathways with other so-called descending control of of the pain sensation okay well charles i hope that answers your question but please don't try hacking on your arm now to test all the theories <laughs> but you have your answer lutando in springs hi there you have a question about cloning humans what are you up to in the garage oh hi <laughs> i'm all right how are you I'm good, thank you. Um, so I was wondering, we effectively almost mapped up the entire human, uh, entire human uh, genome sequence. Um, and so I was wondering why it is, outside of the legal barriers, of course, why it is, it is, no one, uh, why it is that no one has cloned anyone yet? And if it's even possible to clone a human being. Okay. Well, first of all, how do we clone anything? And I, I'm very fortunate. I've actually interviewed, met and spoken at length with the scientist who made the first cloned mammal. That was Dolly the sheep. Yes. 20 something years ago. That was Ian Wilmot, who I'm referring to, who's in Edinburgh. And um, the way they did that was the same way that other scientists had, had done this with simpler animals earlier on in history. And they took a, a skin cell from the udder of a sheep. And that's why Dolly got called Dolly. Ian Wilmot has confirmed to me that's why they called the clone sheep Dolly, because they got it from an udder cell, and they <laughs> named her after Dolly Parton. Oh, <laughs> who, never. When Dolly Parton heard this, said, there's no such thing as bad publicity. <laughs> and she was apparently delighted that this had happened. But they yeah, took the skin fun. cell, and they got an egg cell from another sheep, they got rid of the DNA from the egg cell and they put the DNA from the, the Dolly Parton udder cell into the egg. Now, because the egg now had, instead of just egg DNA, half the normal amount of DNA, it had the full set of chromosomes from the skin cell. It thought it had been fertilized, which meant the egg then started to grow as an embryo. 
And if you implant that into the uterus of a receptive sheep, you will get a new baby lamb genetically identical in every way to the animal from whom you collected the skin cell. And people have since gone on to do this for a range of other species with other sheep, goats, even dogs. There's a guy in Korea who cloned dogs and then had a, they called the puppy that he cloned Snuppy, which was a cloned dog. He called it Snuppy because it was cloned from this. It was a puppy cloned from this other dog. Um, so we know we can do it. But as you go from simpler animals to more complicated, higher mammals, the efficiency with which this happens goes down. And you're talking about fractions of a percent of the time that this works. Mm, mm. So it is a really inefficient because we haven't mastered exactly how to get this right yet. You're basically brutalizing the cell, you're brutalizing the DNA and hoping that the yeah. chemical milieu that you're putting it into is sufficient to kickstart the development process and not break the DNA and, and create a viable pregnancy. Yeah. Then there's the ethical question. And at the moment, we have limited data on what happens with a sheep. We have some data on these other animals. We don't think there's a problem with cloning in this way, but we're not 100% there yet. And we also know there are some issues with not all of the genetic markers are reset the way that uh, yeah. an embryo would reset the genetic markers, which are in the repertoire, the genetic repertoire of an embryo from scratch. So it's not guaranteed if we did this, we would have a human that wouldn't be without problems, yeah, especially given how long humans do. And, and so that at the moment means that there is a complete moratorium on people mm. doing this. And there's probably a good reason that it's not easy. It's not easy to do. I mean, if you believe in the universe, there's a reason that we just don't get past that point. Well, it's utterly fascinating. Well, well there <laughs> is one other thing. Don't, don't let's forget, though, that, that we've been cloning humans for as long as humans exist, because in, one in every... 75 pregnancies is a twin birth. Yes, and absolutely. And a, a fraction of those will be identical twins who are nature's clones. They are naturally Na cloned. Naturally cloned. Because a fertilized egg has split into two and divided its genetic material equally between two daughter cells, and that has produced two mm. identical embryos, and mm. that's how identical twins form. So we have been cloning humans for as long as humans have existed. Other animals do the same thing, but we haven't done this in the laboratory yet for the simple reason that we just don't know enough about it to know that it would be safe. But we are doing similar sorts of things with stem cells to perhaps grow new organs for people. So yeah. in the long term, this is going to be the way we produce new body parts. All right, Chris, we'll be back with your voice notes and more of your questions for The Naked Scientist in just a moment. The Naked Scientist. Yes, that's who we're talking to, somebody I've wanted to talk to for years, and that's Dr. Chris Smith, our Naked Scientist. Let's take a listen to a voice note now. Hello, good afternoon, Dr. Chris. I want to find out, uh, uric acid, uh, when it goes up in our body, when there's, when there's lots of uric acid in our body, it causes uh, gout. Uh, I do get the pains from gout. Now, I want to find out which kind of food uh, makes the uric acid to go up. And the other thing, I want to know uh, what can I take to lower the level of uric acid? Maybe the kind of food that uh, I can eat to lower the level of uh, uric acid in my body. Thank you. Okay, so uric acid and so gout. So the science of gout. Uh, uric acid causes gout. Gout is an inflammatory arthropathy. It's where you get crystals of uric acid deposited into certain joints 
and they are intensely inflammatory and they cause a really profound, painful, swollen, red hot and tender joint. And the commonest site is the joint in your big toe. And if you've got gout, you won't let anyone near it. So if mm. you get a sudden, swollen, very painful joint in your toe, that is because you've got gout there until proven otherwise. It can happen in many other joints, though. Other people, I know one person who's got it on his thumb. So it's usually peripheries because probably those bits of the body are colder and that's where these uric acid crystals are more likely to get deposited. The argument goes that if you're enjoying too much of a rich lifestyle, red meat, lots of red wine, mm. that kind of thing, this will increase the likelihood of hyperuricemia, high levels of uric acid, which is a breakdown product of those dietary components in the blood. And if you increase the level, then you will increase your risk correspondingly of getting gout happen to you. One way to minimize the risk of this happening is to avoid eating a rich diet. So increase the representation of fresh fruit and vegetables in your diet, reduce the amount of red meat in your diet, but that's not exclusively why some people get gout. Some people biochemically are at higher risk of just high levels of uric acid, so they're at higher risk of gout anyway. Some people are undergoing treatments for diseases like cancer. And when we give certain drugs that destroy lots of cells in the body all at once, then one of the release products is substances that can turn into uric acid in your metabolism. What can we do about it apart from dietary modification or if you're at underlying high risk for the latter two reasons? Well, there is a drug, it's called allopurinol, and allopurinol blocks an enzyme called xanthine oxidase. If you block that up, that is the rate-limiting step in making uric acid from these precursors that are released from diet and also the breakdown of cells in your body. And this does help to lower uric acid levels. So if you've got high levels and you lower them, you reduce mm. your risk of getting gout. All right. So first prize, though, is to, I think, it's what you need to leave out as opposed to what you need to add to that diet. Thanks very much. Let's hear from well, Jeff. fresh fruit and vegetables. Yes. Yeah, no, that would be more, my tip. Would be yeah. Increase those and reduce the representation red. of red meat if yeah. you can. If you can. All right. Go, go anemic, though. Oh, yes, of course. <laughs> Give one and get something else. All right. Well, let's hear from Jeff in Soweto. You've got a question about cancer, Jeff. Yes. Um, I would like to find out if it's possible to have two types of cancers at the same time, colon um, and, and um, um, Is it prostate cancer? cancer? Um, Prostate. prostate, colon, and is it possible yes. to have colon and prostate time. cancer? All right, Chris, if mm. we can answer this Hi, one. Yeah. The answer is that you never say never in medicine, and there's no reason why that couldn't happen and probably frequently does. And I don't want to be alarmist, but the vast majority of men in their 70s and 80s will have a focus of cancer in their prostate. But they're not going to die of prostate cancer because it's very common and it's often very indolent and slow growing and something else will get us blokes before we die of our prostate cancer. But it is very, very common to have prostate cancer. And at the same time, lots of other people who've got prostate cancer may also independently develop cancers in other organs. Mm. So say you smoke a lot, you are at very high risk of lung cancer or breast cancer and bowel cancer from smoking. So it's very highly likely that you will develop other cancers independently of having, mm. say, an age-related long-term cancer like prostate cancer. So there's no reason why you couldn't have that happen, although, thankfully, the number of people presenting clinically with two cancers that are life-threatening in two independent ways at the same time is quite low. 
All right, I think we have just enough time for another quick call. Yako uh, in Santon, I'm worried. Lots of people asking about cutting and, and all kinds of things. So knife sharpening and atomic cutting, Yako, that's what you want to know about. Uh, yes, hi, Chris. Um, I just hi. want to know how does, how does cutting objects actually work? So if you take a knife and you cut an apple, the atoms themselves never touch. So what do you actually do? Do you break the molecular bond? Or how does uh, a knife cut through an object, and why would sharpening then increase the effectiveness of the knife? Right, okay. When you sharpen a knife, you're making the blade of the knife thinner at certain points. And this means it will go into the object more easily, because if you've got a fat surface, you've got a lower pressure that you're exerting because pressure is all about force over surface area so if you have a thinner blade when you apply the blade to say a strawberry or a cucumber or something you've got a thinner blade same force therefore the pressure is much higher you're more likely to go through the surface so that's why sharpening helps but physically what is happening when you cut something well it, it's down to the fact that if you take say rubber let's think about rubber or polythene this is made up of lots of polymers and many things we find in nature, fruits and vegetables, they're all polymers that are proteins. They're still long chains of atoms all linked together. And so if you think about it, if you can cut a piece of polythene into two, you must be able to break chains of atoms. So what your knife is doing is it is actually applying a force which is sufficient to actually break the associations between chains or polymers so that the knife can go between them because polymers are long chains of atoms that line up close to each other and there are bonds between them that hold them together and there are attractions electrically between them. You get your knife between the two, you sever those attractions and you sever some of those chemical associations so that you, you part the chains and you physically separate one part of a molecule and another molecule that were previously associated together, and that's how you split them apart. Wow, okay. So that's the thought we have to give uh, when we're cutting anything. Well, that's about all we have time for, gentlemen. Thanks very much, uh, Chris Smith. You are indeed the smartest guy on the planet. You are indeed uh, a geek and a comedian to boot as well. So it's been a pleasure. Uh, I hope You're I get welcome. to chat to you again. Thanks so much. And uh, that is it. I'm Yveka Rangopa, Info Rela Bokile Mabocha. I'll be here with you until Thursday.